0: you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to the letter of Ephesians. Now hold on, I'm about to shock you. We are not going to look at verses 3 through 14 this morning. We are moving forward. We have been looking at Paul's gushing over the extravagant grace of God, Uh, that longest sentence from verse 3 to the end of verse 14. Now, what I have not said to you up to this point that we are going to look at today is all of that was the beginning section of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. A lot of times when we move to verse, uh, starting in 15 and forward, um, a lot of people say, Paul now turns to pray for the Ephesians. No, he's been praying the whole time. What he's doing now in his prayer is transitioning from gushing over the extravagant grace of God to asking the Lord to bless his people with receiving grace that work of god for themselves so this is as we move forward it is an intercessory prayer that paul has for god's people if you are currently serving as an elder or deacon or if you are uh, in the the office or training right now you should pay particular attention this morning as this is such a wonderful passage to help you realize What your privilege is as an officer in God's church, to be one who is celebrating the work of God on behalf of God's people and praying for God's people that they would embrace that work of God. That's our calling and our role. So please, if you are uh, a current officer or you are in officer training, um, consider this part of that officer training. And yes, Rusty, that does mean you still have to come tomorrow night as well. So this is not in a, in, in, uh, this is whatever I'm trying to say. we look here at verses uh, 15, we're going to read verses 15 through 23. We're not going to cover it all today. Lord willing, we will cover it today and next Sunday. Let's give our reverent attention to God's word. of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that even as we have just celebrated and recounted your righteous, redeeming deeds and actions and intentions on our behalf in Jesus Christ, that our hearts would be ready to gush And so, Lord, use this word, this gospel truth, and that union with Christ that we have as those uh, who have a shared life, love, and mission with the triune God. Use this word, O God, indeed, that through it you may give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the truth of you, that you would open the eyes of our heart so that we may know what is our hope in Jesus Christ, so that we might relish the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that we might be in awe of the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you want to know what I pray for you, this is one of the passages for you to read and to reflect on. And if you want to take that gushing of the Apostle Paul in in verses 3 through 14 and make it yours to personalize that and to cultivate it in your life and, and to take that truth and plant it and to water it and to watch the spirit give it growth as roots go deep if you want that for yourself then you should pray this prayer for yourself even as i am praying this prayer for you because this is what it is all about all the doctrine And all the theology which we have been talking about is just, those are just big words. Theology, doctrine, they're just big words to describe God personally revealing himself to us. God wants a relationship. He wants to be known. And he wants to know. Beloved, when we are unfolding this truth of who God is and, and what He has done, it is for the purpose of knowing God. It is for the purpose of knowing ourselves better. Knowing who we were in Adam, who we no longer are because we are now in Christ. It is the language of identity that Paul, in his prayer, is celebrating. If you think of prayer, as, as many of you have learned through your lives, uh, praying according to the Acts paradigm, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, what Paul has just done in verse 3-14 through 14 is adoration. He has begun his prayer, and he has has been pouring out and gushing forth with an adoration for who God is and what God has done. And now he transitions into this time of thanksgiving and supplication for the Ephesians. Verse 3 starts with, Blessed be our God and Father. Blessed is, it's another way of saying, praise be. It's a way of beginning a prayer. And that prayer, uh, in that prayer, he has blessed God who has blessed us. He has blessed God with that general blessing of praising the Lord for that overall blessing of of having united us to Jesus Christ. And because of that union with Christ, beloved, he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's not one that has been left out. And that leads Paul to celebrate God. But specifically, he goes forward. And in his prayer, he blesses the God that, that has done these things. He, he blesses God for those actions of God that provide this wide panoramic view of how comprehensive God's work for us in Christ is. He, he blesses God for choosing us, setting his heart upon us before the foundations of the world in, in order that there is a re, there's a truth that as He set His heart on us from the beginning, there's never been a time that His heart was not set upon you. He predestined you. He redeemed you. He freed you. He forgave you. He has lavished upon you everything that belongs to Christ. He has made known to you the mysteries of, of what he is doing as God's purposes is to unite everything in heaven and everything on earth in Jesus Christ. He has sealed us with his spirit. There is nothing that God has left out. Problem for you and for me don't seem quite often to be ready to allow this perspective of who God is and what he has done to truly define us and serve being the lenses through which we see ourselves we see God and especially the way we see one Shorthand way of talking about what Paul is gushing about here is that Jesus Christ is a peace making Christ. He's not a peacekeeping Christ. I'm not saying that he's not, it's just not what Paul's talked about. Jesus has made you. Beloved, between you and God, if you are in Jesus Christ, you enjoy the peace of that Christ enjoys with his Father. It's not just that Christ has made peace available to you. What Jesus has done is he has drawn you to participate in the peace that he has with the Father. So that as the Father is it perfect, eternal shalom with his Son, you are part of that. But this is not how we tend to see ourselves. This is not how we tend to view ourselves. We don't tend to think of God as perfectly satisfied and happy with us because of Jesus Christ. We tend to think of God as gritting his teeth and putting up with us, bearing with us. At some point, you know, maybe in the future, you know, maybe then it'll be okay for me to be around these folks, but right now, ugh, I just kind of put up with them. That's how we tend to view God. And what that can do is that can tend to lead us to view ourselves that way. And it can certainly lead us to view one another in the church that way. I'm just going to put up with so and so. Maybe one day God will finally sanctify him that he can become part of my inner circle. I'm sorry, it gave the impression that it's a woman. Maybe one day God will sanctify her. Right, we all do it. That's the point. Paul has been gushing and praising God for the extravagance of God's favor. As we said last week, we tend to dip our toes in it. We want to test it out constantly. That, is that a grace that's comfortable? What we have seen, beloved, is that, put it simply, comprehensive work of God in Christ for us. God is on our side. But in another way, he has put us on his side. He has picked us it's like a game of dodgeball in school. And you got picked. He's not against you. God is actively at work among you for your good and for his glory. He is not passive. God is present and personal with you. He is not remote. God is totally involved with you and with all of his creation. He is not indifferent. And to prove this to you, he has given you his spirit to dwell within you, to seal you, and to ratify to you that you belong to him. Because the enmity between you and God has been totally and completely paid. Paul has been praying, and he has been celebrating, and he has been gushing. And beloved, that is the very first thing that you and I need to do if we are going to move from theology to relationship with God. Where the doctrine that we are learning is not just something that we know and something that we can answer correct answers to if we're asked the right questions, but that it is doctrine that is changing your heart and your mind, and your soul, and your strength so that you are giving yourself in devotion over to him more and more and more so that you are taking that gospel and you are applying it to yourself over and over and over and so that in this church not in churches this church we are loving Means, beloved, we have been made partakers of a peace making Christ. And if we can't do it here in the relationships that we have here, then how are we going to do it with those that we don't have a shared life with by being united in? Beloved, this peacemaking Christ draws us into his peacemaking. Now, this was happening for the church in, Ephes- in Ephesus, as God had worked powerfully and mightily to draw people out of sin, to draw them out of the magic arts, to draw them out of the idolatry to Artemis, to draw them out of a out of a culture that said that you had to offer sacrifice to the gods and you had to offer sacrifice to Caesar in order to be in order to work and to make a living. That you had to prostitute yourself to the gods in order for you uh, to have any kind of happy life. That you had to go to temple and you had to manipulate the gods in order to get them to uh, do what you wanted them to do. They were called out of this horrible situation where they lived in a very wealthy, decadent culture and society in which they had been freed from those things and yet called over and over and over to renew that identity that they had in Christ so that they weren't giving themselves to power. So they weren't giving themselves to politics. So they weren't giving themselves to money. So they weren't giving themselves to the idol of career. So they weren't giving themselves to false religion. So they weren't giving themselves to dabbling in the truth and dabbling in falsehood. So that they could be freed to be singularly devoted to the true God in whose life and love and mission they had been drawn into the reunion with Jesus. That's what Paul is dealing with. And there in Ephesus, because it was a port city, because it was a wealthy city, because it was a city of trade and commerce, it was a city that was uh, at, at, uh, that had a, a huge library, and it was a center for learning, a center of learning from for Roman culture, for Greek culture. And the Romans and the Greeks were fighting over one another to see who was going to win the day. And guess what? Because of that, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there were people from all kinds of different ethnicities and races and, and financial status and socio political status and education status. There were people from all these different parts of life being saved out of darkness and drawn into the kingdom of Jesus Christ where the peace of Christ was being made not just between God and sinners but where peace was being made between groups that hated one another that did not interact with one another and we know that there were struggles in this church that have to do with unity because the structure of this letter is chapters one two and three here is your union with Christ here is your identity chapters four five and six here is how you live out that identity because right now you're not and what you can do is you can read through chapters four five and six and look at the issues that Paul is addressing and you can guess what from that you can intuit the issues that they had. And in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul implores them as a prisoner for Christ for them to hold fast and to promote the unity that Jesus Christ had already achieved for them. Now, when we get there, I'm going to make a big point about Paul not saying Make unity, because you and I can't make unity, and we're not called to make unity. Christ made the unity. We're called to preserve it and to embody it and to apply that unity with one another. But my point here is that you have a church that had a powerful working of God and drawing them all these different people groups and ethnicities and races with all these differences, and had called them out of darkness, and had called them into the kingdom of the beloved. Let alone all those different ethnicities and races, now being made one those who grew up Jewish. That group was supposed to embody the wonder that Jesus Christ had achieved for them. And so how does a group of diverse sinners who have been drawn together and given new life in Jesus Christ, how do you embody that identity in the way that you are interacting with yourself and with one another? Well, notice here what Paul calls those to whom he is writing, those for whom he has been praying. He doesn't call them sinners saved by grace. He says to the saints. Now for many of us, it is hard to refer to ourselves as saints. That word has has been so misused throughout the history of the church to uh, only be something that some remarkable person who apparently did some kind of miracle gets to have the status of saint. But notice that what Paul does is he uses the term simply on the basis of those who have received the work of Jesus Christ. That here he calls them saints not on the basis of anything that they have done. Whether it is some great big miracle or not. This, their being called saint here has nothing to do with their activities, their actions, their devotion. It has nothing to do with that. He defines, Paul does, he defines them solely on the basis of the completed work of Christ for them. You are called. You are loved. You are freed. You are forgiven. You have the indwelling of the Spirit. You are a Defining them by how God defines them. That's the first step. Have you ever wondered why when I send out a congregational email, when I send out the emails that most of you don't read, but if you were to read them, if you talk to anyone who does read them, how does every uh, one of them, like when I send out the information for, for the worship service, how do they begin? Dear saints, of grace. I'm going to force you to consider yourselves the way God considers you in Jesus Christ. And if you've, I know I'm still new, but if any one of you can say I've heard him refer to us as sinners, let me know because that is a failure. My Beloved, I want to inculcate into you the gushing of Paul on behalf of God in Jesus. You in Christ. And notice calls them saints not because of anything they've done, but solely on the basis of what Christ did. And he then does what? He gives thanksgiving to God. He gives thanksgiving to God for a group of people who are not getting along all that well to the point that he has to write to them about unity. He has to write to them about how to live out their new identities with regards to service in the church, with regards to the use of their mouths, with regards to the use of money, with regards to uh, how to be married, where, the, where, the, where a, a marriage is, is not something that is conditioned upon two parties entering into a covenant of works with one another. Where, where the bride says, hey, I'm going I'm to love you as long as you do what I think you're supposed to do. Where the husband says, I'll love you as long as you do what I think you're supposed to do. That's not Christian marriage. Christian marriage is built upon a covenant of grace that regardless of how you do things, I'm going to love you because Christ is in me. See, there's a difference there. And it's not just about marriage. It's about every relationship in the church. But it does come to head so frequently in marriage. Children are being called to obey their parents in the Lord. Not obey your parents because your mom and dad tell you to. So that even children in the church who are called To obey mother and father are called to do that on the basis of their identities from their baptisms. Grace, 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 grace. And yet, a people who are struggling, who are sinning, who are not united, who are all these things, Paul calls them saints and then he gives thanks to God because he has heard about their what? If you're an officer in the church, you should either be confused right now, or you should be shaking your head with that, I get it. Does he celebrate them for their love, because they are perfectly loving? is he celebrating them for the love because all they do is love? Is he celebrating God because he's heard about their love? Is he encouraged as someone who is in prison where he gets excited because he's heard that they're loving one another? Is it because it's perfect love? Is it complete love? Is, Is it love without mistakes? No, it's because there is love. And if you want to encourage love, what you don't do is call people wicked sinners and try and tell them to try harder. You don't come in and start whipping them and driving them and and trying to make them feel bad about themselves in order to motivate them to be loving and to stop making mistakes. With the grace of Jesus Christ who knowing every mistake that you and I have made and Him with joy set before Him doing everything necessary to call us to Himself. Do you think He did that on the basis of us responding perfectly? And does He just mock us when we don't? Or does God remind us every? week after week after week in the assurance of pardon within this service that though you have owned sin, though you have been honest about your sin, even though you have entered into an agreement with God about your sin, He tells you how He views that sin in Jesus Christ and calls you to embrace the freedom and forgiveness of who you are in Christ so that you will be encouraged and empowered to pursue new obedience. For the obedience is coming not because you were perfect this week and God gave you an attaboy and told you to try again. Because He comes to you in His mercy and He says, look, as He's wiping you off again, I love you and I know you're going to be like this, and I've taken care of it. Buck up. Get excited about who you are in Christ so that you will continue to devote yourself to me more and serve me more. And as you trip and stumble and struggle, guess what? I'm right here. And I'm going to constantly remind you that though, yes, you just did this, guess who you are? Guess how I see you? According to Paul in Romans 6, guess how you're supposed to see yourself? You're supposed to reckon yourselves dead to sin. So he's cultivating this in the people, in the way that he addresses them as saints, the way he prays for them, celebrating even the little bit of victory that they are embodying as young believers in Jesus Christ who live in a terribly wicked culture and situation, who were submerged in all of it themselves just a couple years prior to this writing. And he is celebrating even that little bit of growth and manifestation of the life of Christ. If you're an officer in the church... This is your privilege to come alongside those who are struggling to manifest their new identity in Jesus Christ and to put your arm around them and to ask them, What can I do to help you move? It is not to come alongside people and berate them, it is not for the purpose to come along and be critical and to deconstruct. Paul celebrates them even though they're not perfect, and even though they're not even close to mature. They are young, they are immature, they are struggling with sin. And yet, because the life of Christ is in them, Guess what also is in them in spite of themselves? God's life. God's love. And so how do you pray for yourself? Officers, how do you pray for the church? Pray... this gospel and its comprehensive nature is something that will move from people's minds. You are praying that they will embrace the truth that is there. But you're also praying that they will experience the truth. That they will experience. the life of god in them that they will experience the grace of god in them that they will experience the love of god in them they will cultivate a life in the spirit this is what i pray for you that that you won't just be able to answer catechism questions correctly guess what i love it when you do The goal is not to learn the catechism. The goal is to experience what the catechism is describing, and then to embody that, so that your life will grow to reflect that truth more and more, and to extend that truth to those who are perishing in darkness. Keep using these E words, and I hope that they are getting drilled into your heart. Embrace, experience, embody, and extend. And we're going to talk a lot more about extending next week, Lord willing. But here at the very beginning, I pray for you that God's wisdom and revelation, that that truth of who God is and what he is doing and what he is revealing is something that you will grasp hold of and that you will learn to let go of everything else more and more and to cling to that truth more tightly. I pray that God will have the, will 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 enlighten the eyes of your hearts. This moves beyond just a simple recognition and acceptance of doctrinal statements. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened gets to the depths of the imagination of faith. Not an imagination that is often talked about in in fiction and in fairy tales where you're trying to, to see something that doesn't really exist. But that imagination of faith where you are learning to stop Seeing the things that you do see all the times right before you in order to see the things that truly do exist that you don't always see. This is why C.S. Lewis said that it is adults who need to read fairy tales. Because children have an imagination to look beyond what is right in front of them. Beloved, you and I, as we grow older and as we have more responsibilities and as we have more interactions with people who, who don't always manifest the life of Christ, in the church let alone dealing with people outside of christ outside of the church the result can be that we start becoming myopic in our vision and we can become narrow in what we see narrow in what we focus on and as we confess in the confession of sin we can get caught into the trap of defining life according to the finite things that we can see, touch, handle, and taste, and hear, rather than defining them according to the realities of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ, which we do not see in its fullness right now. Yet, it is nonetheless true. As Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, he has been seated on the throne on high and everything has been put under His feet. Beloved, I pray that the imagination of your faith will get you beyond the things that you experience in the here and now so that you can taste more readily of the things that are above. I pray that you will embrace the hope of Jesus Christ so that with the certainty that that hope provides you will take chances for God. That you'll trust Him. You'll step out of your comfort zone. And you will bear witness for Christ in ways that are not easy or natural or comfortable, that may be even or costly. Because the superiority of the worth of Christ of way that little earthly rusting trinket that you might try to give up in order to show the world how much more superior Jesus is. I pray that you would embrace the riches of your glorious inheritance. Now, I pray that you would embrace, experience, and embody, and extend the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward. You. It is a power that is immeasurable in every one of us. This guy, too. We measure it all. God's power is awesome. But it's not awesome enough for me to maybe go and deal with a relationship that's broken. It's powerful, but it's not quite powerful enough for me to to deal with problems. It's powerful. Oh, man, it raised Jesus from the dead, Paul tells us. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and that's power, but it's not powerful enough for me to deal with that ongoing sin what we will do is we will measure the immeasurable power of God and we will say it is only good up until this point and that's it. and that's our line. Paul is trying to help us to do is to learn as we mature and as we grow, to keep pushing that line further and further and further
1: and further.
0: Because guess what? Not only does Paul not, God doesn't expect you to embrace, his immeasurable power all at one time. But what he does want you to do is cultivate that power by, by trusting it a little bit more and a little bit more and take one more chance and, and try this thing. Don't let a broken relationship just sit and go according to the pagan theory that with time all things heal. Beloved, that's not Christian. The Christian perspective is that Jesus Christ has healed every relationship that you have with others who have a shared life with you in the union of Jesus Christ. And so fight for that. Don't fight the person because of differences. Overcome the differences on the basis of what Christ has accomplished and go to them and learn to extend the power of God's in your life beyond what's comfortable, what's natural, what what you think is appropriate and be crazy in Christ enough to forgive someone and then to recultivate that relationship. It is not Christian to let sleeping dogs Because Jesus redeemed. Jesus empowers. But with this gushing of Paul over the peacemaking Christ, he gushes over so that you will gush over. Because I can tell you right now, to the degree... That you see God's power as awesome is the degree to which you measure that power. And that will be the limit to which you will entrust yourself to that power. God celebrates how immeasurable his is. And so cultivate this power. That's what I'm praying for you, and that's what it, I am praying for you. Everything that, God, uh, that Paul has just gushed over in terms of the blessings of God, Paul now prays that you will learn to embrace. And as you do, you will experience it. And as you do, you'll mature and you'll grow, and you'll start to embody that more and more and more. And, beloved, do that. The life will become a shining uh, monument, superiority of God's grace, and you will extend, But this is what I pray for you, what I pray for me. Current officers and training officers, let this be your prayer for yourself. And let this be your prayer for this congregation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you. And even in saying that, it is the words are inadequate to express how awesome you are, how comprehensive you are how loving you are, how present you are, how real you are, how powerful you are. And so help us, Lord, not to just take these things for granted. Help us not to just embrace the doctrinal bullet statements of of our confession and catechisms, but instead, Lord, may we embrace the triune God who who is in the truth, so that in embracing you more and more, we would indeed grow not only in our knowledge, but we would grow in the experience of you through that knowledge. That we would live lives in which your truth is not just something that can be heard from our lips, but it is seen in our living. And Father, use all of this to bring greater glory to your name within our own relationship with you, within our relationships within this church, and even to a watching world, Lord. They may see you in us and that in seeing the superiority of who you are, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to give the reason for our hope. Or may it begin with us. Pray this in Jesus' name.